Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast, and welcome to 2020. I'm Tyler Green. We return to new programs this week with Paul Mpaji Sapoya. The Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston is presenting an eponymous survey of Sapoya's work. It's on view at the Blaffer through March 14th. Sapoya's photographs of himself, his friends, and his colleagues advance portraiture through layering, fragmentation, confusion, and a certain kind of trompe l'oeil. They make us question what we see, how it's constructed, and encourage us to contemplate the relationship between reality and artifice. His work is in the collection of museums such as MoMA in New York, which included it in Being New Photography 2018, MoCA in Los Angeles, where his work may be seen now, in the foundation of the museum MoCA's collection through January 20th, and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the Studio Museum in Harlem too. On the second segment, Chira Obata. But before we get to this week's program, a couple of quick notes. Because of the slightly odd calendar this time of year, Today, June 2nd, is a Thursday. We'll have the images for this week's show up tomorrow, Friday. And because it's been a couple of weeks since I asked you to feed the algorithms, please take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. Thanks very much. Paul and Paji Sapoya, after the break. The internationally acclaimed exhibition Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, is making its final West Coast stop in San Francisco. On view now at the de Young Museum, Soul of a Nation celebrates the art made by black artists during two pivotal decades when issues of race and identity dominated public consciousness. Visitors to the de Young Museum's presentation will discover the Bay Area's own unique connection to the art and artists of the Black Power era. Don't miss Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power's final West Coast stop. Reserve your tickets today at deyoungmuseum.org. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. In the episode focused on Alice Neal, Molesworth speaks with artists Simone Lee and Moira Davey, and Neal talks about motherhood, inequality, economic hardship, and her own mental health challenges. Binge the entire series now, at getty.edu slash recordingartists. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. And we're back. Paul Mpaji Sapoya, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with the earliest works in the show, which go back to about 2005 and, and, and the mid-aughts. Uh, they're portraits, often but not always nudes of men posed on a bed. Why were portraits important to you? I mean, at that time, just deciding to make a portrait was a big, was like a big jump for me. Or maybe a jump isn't the right word, but needing to just sort of be very direct. You know, the first, the first portraits that there is from about 2005, and so that's a year out of undergrad where I had been making a lot of images with people. I had been either, you know, getting friends to 
you know, to sit for me or finding people off of these bulletin boards and art schools or Craigslist art section. But I was using people to, I think, illustrate ideas, which I won't even get into. It was all very convoluted, the sort of things you kind of get carried away with when you're taking very interesting undergrad classes in like history and visual culture and stuff. And so, but afterwards I, you know, sort of realized I had to, or it was more important, it was important for me to actually ask why I was making pictures of people and why, as I continued to look at work and edit, that those who I didn't know or who I had no connection to just sort of dropped out of the work. And so I decided to start photographing and really thinking of them as portraits, but also, which, which meant that I also then had to become a part of the work. I wanted to put all of the motivations and like up to the forefront. And so like when you describe, you know, most of them are portraits of young men and most of them are in some state of undress. There's more just sort of partially undressed than actual nudes. But I like how the nudity got became very notorious. It was because I just wanted to, to put sort of unresolved kind of nebulous desire or flirtation that was kind of like at the center of of these new friendships that were forming and a new group, like kind of like expanding social circle. I just wanted to put that at the forefront. And so I decided to photograph everyone or everyone would be photographed as if they were like a lover or a romantic interest or perhaps like an ex that you're still friends with or someone that you're, you know, I just wanted to put that at the front. So regardless of act of the type of friendship that was forming, I made that sort of the starting point uh, because it was about photography and it was about looking. And I just sort of wanted to acknowledge that this sort of things didn't have to resolve necessarily to like platonic or romantic or, or sexual dynamics in this mostly kind of like homosocial world, which is also to say it's important to know that not all of the subjects are queer. And so the work, the portraits never actually disclose anyone's relationship to sexuality or gender other than there's sort of like a two-way participation in the, in the work. So there's some straight people mixed in there. It's basically what I'm trying to say, but it's like, it's, you know, it's like if you're at the party, you're at the party and you know, we can all sort of like inhabit various worlds or sort of play off of, of how we move through those spaces. Yeah. And one of the reasons I was curious is not just because the show starts there, but in recent years, you are very present in your work. We see lots of your hands. We see lots of your deltoids, uh, which I immediately understood once I read that you were a rock climber. Do you, looking looking back on your advance through your career, have an understanding of when it became possible or necessary for you to be in the work? Oh, that was at the very beginning. I mean, I think it was probably within a few months of beginning that project in 2000, end of 2004, beginning of 2005. And, you know, it didn't have a title at the time. I started off by going back and photographing my friend John. We had like briefly had a little undergrad photo department fling and we had kind of lost touch in the years afterwards. And so I began the project by going back and photographing him. And then I kind of kind of caught up to the to these sort of present friendships. And then once I sort of made my way to the present, I realized that 
you know, I couldn't just, I needed to participate and be in front of the camera in a way that was as open and vulnerable as I was asking these friends to do, especially because a lot of it was about making these portraits at moments when the bringing a camera into the situation was really complicated. Like I was really into like, oh, there's something weird going on. Like there's something I don't know. Like I would like to rekindle a friendship with John, but like how will this process like make that happen or, you know, so there was a lot of kind of like vulnerability happening. And I just realized that I had to be a part of it because I couldn't ask people to do what I wasn't willing to also do. So there's, I was taking regular self portraits. I've been, I've been doing that the entire way through and it has become interesting as more recent projects develop. I have a lot of work that is still portrait based and those works are simply titled a portrait and then the appended file name. Right. But, and, and as you said, I appear in a lot of the work, but none of the recent work I've considered to be self portraits. My appearance has become perhaps a necessary component of these portraits of me along with someone else. But I've been thinking more of using my presence as, as like material in, in these compositions on the mirror that I can use my body to, to make visible all of this kind of like traces and smudges and touch that's, that's on the mirror that kind of gets worked over in the other images. So yeah, so I'm present, but I've, I've been thinking of them less as portraits. And I think even the current portrait portraits are somewhere, but they all kind of rest somewhere between like a portrait, a depiction of a person or when sort of a, a person who is a close friend kind of then steps into this role of being a model and then the image creates a whole other kind of third character. So anyways, I've had to be a part of it since the beginning. My role is transformed, but portraits are still the thing at its center. At, at some point in, in your practice, how a, photo, uh, how a photograph was made became one of your central investigations. Uh, an, an investigation that continues in in really fascinating ways. There's a work in the show called Studio Work from 2010-11 that features tables, and on those tables and under those tables are books and magazines, uh, laser prints on paper, instant photos, pushpins, post-its, bookmarks. You get the idea. Is that piece the beginning or a beginning of when How Pictures Were Made became a focus of yours? That's a good question. I wouldn't say that was when thinking about how pictures are made began. That was thinking about how pictures get made came afterwards, but studio work was really about, it's about kind of figuring out something that had happened prior, which is that when I initially was making portraits, I thought that the portraits would be something that produced a kind of certainty you know, they're, they're very sharp, lovely color photographs made on a medium format camera that, you know, the, all, all the technology like produces this very sort of like precise thing. And we kind of extend that thinking to like the resulting image, right? Like this is a portrait of a person that has like some sort of essence or something, but I came to realize that the space in which all of this was circulating and kind of like leaving my grasp and going out into the world and all these 
through, through zine culture, through online blogs, sort of a lot of the work kind of became notorious that, oh gosh, the, I became more interested in all of the complications of making portraiture in a space that was very much tied to like a type of currency in kind of like gay image culture. I wouldn't say it's queer because I wasn't using that term back then, but just how like gay men are like cheap and like use pictures in any way we can, right? So which meaning that they would circulate within the realm of art, but they very easily left. So anyways, I became more interested in like all of the stuff that accumulated while making work and all of the stuff that was kind of unexpected. So by the time 2010 came along, I wasn't really interested in making definitive images, but like really thinking about all of the process around it. So when I had this residency at the studio museum, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just invited the same friends and new friends and, you know, to, to spend time up there and we would photograph and I would then photograph the space while I was sitting around being bored and looking at things. And so it became less about trying to make definitive pictures there, although some did result, but the project, what you see when you're talking about those tabletops and then the crate that's filled with all of this material is that's all of the working material that kind of like began to, it's, it's what's left of the working material that began to fill up the space over the course of that year residency. So you're looking at all of the test prints that were, that I was making at Adorama on 18th street for, you know, a dollar a print. So I could quickly look at things. You're looking at the, the laser printouts that I made in the, on the copier in the office. You're looking at like the books that I was reading. There's some things that, you know, may have been left by friends passing through so that the project was that that project actually be, was all of that, all of that material, which could then be like a source for making work afterwards, if that makes sense. That's that's interesting. I, I should point out that when you say you were working at the Studio Museum, you had a residency there. But it, 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 what, what's interesting to me is that it sounds like that you're sort of describing how in the process of deauthoritizing the portrait, you tore the thing down, and one of the ways you would later go on to put pictures together uh, is by investigating how they were made. I mean, it seems to me like a like a catenary curve from from one down 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 the catenary to studio work, and then back up to your investigation of how pictures are made. Yeah, yeah. There, like, what came afterwards is totally like it. You know, there's a clear through line which. I always wonder like if it, you know, sort of makes sense because may, one of the things that led to maybe thinking about how pictures are made is that at the studio museum, I started photographing the pictures that I was working on in process. I was photographing all of that, like sort of like material that was kind of not quite resolved. So there was the pictures of pictures. And then, so that starts introducing this kind of like layering of like spatially, but also like of time, you know, like there's a work in the show called Darren September 8th from 2011. But within that image, it's actually a photograph of the subject, my friend Darren from that June. And within that, so that becomes like a frame within a frame and it's surrounded by these fragments of other portraits and then two books that I'm reading. And then these orange 
peels, Sirac Clementine peels that my friend Jacqueline had given to me. And I liked keeping them in the studio because as they just sort of dried out, they didn't mold or decay. They just sort of slowly changed. And so they introduced the study of the still life. So in thinking about like how pictures are made, part of me is so in thinking about how pictures are made, there was the picture that has to necessarily include everything around it or everything that came before it. And then there is really thinking about like how all of the material that's generated for the making of something is just material for something that I can't even quite anticipate, you know? So when you see all of the layering and the, what people call fragmentation and things in more recent work, it starts from the studio museum, but it didn't, or it continues from the studio museum. But what I was doing at the studio museum was actually just note taking that had begun in the, actual color dark room, the analog dark room, when I didn't have a studio and the way I would photograph just as like snapshots or just notes, all of the material that I may be printing on a certain day in the dark room. And I would, it would just be on that magnetic board under the, the color balancing lights, you know, because it just became a ways of me to sort of remember things that I might've been associating at any given moment. So these images of kind of, pictures composited of of these sort of still lives and portraits and observations began as note taking. And then I realized that they in themselves could become works and then they became more formalized. Well, let me let's let's get there in a second, because since since you brought up Darren September 8, which is one of the works I had in my notes, I, I, I want to touch on one other thing about that pe- picture. You mentioned the, the 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 fruit peels, the orange peels that are in Darren September 8. There are also dried orange peels in studio work. One of the things that struck me about Darren September 8 is how thoroughly painterly it is. It, it references still life traditions, you know, in its use, uh, in your use of your own pictures. It reminds me of, say, a John Frederick Pito and how he uses painted representations of photographs in his late 19th century Trumploy still lifes. And the orange peels in your Darren, September 8, you know, point to remind me of a long tradition of orange peels or lemon peels in in painting and how they stand for the sense of smell, uh, sensuality, temporality. Were you consciously letting painting in, beginning your address of painting and its history back around then in 2011? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... I don't know how if there's a way to escape painting. I mean, I don't think you can anyone can really make photography without having some indebtedness to painting, right? It's like photography is really just a tool for making better paintings <laughs> at a certain point. So yeah, all of those, you know, I was thinking about painting, but I think also in a way in which painting really kind of like is cool with handling genres in a way in which I think photography sort of doesn't deal with so well in a similar way to literature and writing in a way that that deals with genres. So yeah, I was thinking about painting and again, you know, I was also really interested in, I guess I maybe always have been and kind of these very formal compositions. And I think through the idea of observation and time, because perhaps photography sometimes just sort of suggests that 
maybe something is kind of quickly put together and then photographed and then disassembled, or you're moving through the world and you capture a decisive moment or something, but you don't think about necessarily someone spending time looking at an arrangement over an extended period in order to make a photograph in the way in which you would, if you were to paint a scene, you are spending maybe several dozens of hours looking at it. But all of these come from just sort of a, an observation of, you know, the vast majority of the time in that space, even though I'm making all of these portraits and friends are coming up and hanging out is spent alone and just looking. And so the camera would become part of that kind of slow looking. So in a sense, yeah, I'm thinking about painting in that way in which it takes time and observation in order to then make that still life for that scene. And that's why I think those ones are actually more interesting than the portraits themselves. Like the portraits continued that way of just being able to engage with people and they're fun and they're pleasurable and, you know, we're having a good time, but then it's really looking at all of the material that's generated from it, where more of the meaning is made. So we've been going kind of linearly, uh, but here I'm just going to jumble it up and because you begin doing many things uh, more or less at the same time over about the next five years. And one of them we've already referred to is mirrors, is, is, is you've used mirrors in the work. What made mirrors interesting to you? Is it, did that come from painting or from somewhere else? No, I wasn't thinking about mirrors and painting per se. I mean, but of course I, you know, one sees Las Meninas or something and thinks about Mirrors. I had been, oh gosh, there was like a moment I had a brief studio sublet in Brooklyn in like 2012, but I had like thought about getting a mirror. I wanted to see what it was like to photograph in a reflection. You know, it was kind of like in the back of my mind. I had been visiting a good friend of mine when I first moved back to LA. Or yeah, when I first moved back to LA, a, a good friend who I reconnected with was living in San Diego doing his masters at UCSD and he was living in this house that had these he had found these huge like imperial size I don't even know how to describe them mirrors that would be made for a like a mansion's closets you know they're like 10 feet tall 12 feet tall they're insane and I made all of these photographs of him and our another friend of ours she and he were just sort of like laying and I was photographing their reflections and I kept these little just little printouts in my studio I was looking at these photographs that I took of Minty and Mitsuko and I was like I'm just gonna go to Home Depot and I'm gonna get a bunch of mirrors that I can fit in the trunk of my car and I brought a few back and I put them in my studio and leaned them up against the walls or against the desks and I began using those as surfaces that I could sort and make arrangements of this material on their surface. And when I would photograph it, that I would be incorporated formally into the image, the act of like looking. And I thought that, okay, I can set up this process where I can rephotograph them. It'll help me sort of resolve all of this content and then I can put them away. And what I mean by putting them away is into these book projects, which we can talk about <laughs> later because we haven't even gotten to. But then they became more formalized and I started becoming really interested in what that surface did with the mirrors and in not wanting to make tricky looking pictures or pictures where 
the mirror becomes like a non-space or like a space for illusion, I left, I stopped cleaning its surface so that if you were looking at this image, you might hopefully catch one of the smudges or a way in which something is a glimmer of light is reflected strange and realize that that when you that when you saw me in the image you were seeing me at the moment that i'm making it that the surface was not just sort of a non-space and that they were not um and it was also very important that they be understood to not be digital composites that everything was actually happening in like in spatially because i deal with material physically and i didn't want to create or allude to a type of composite image making that could just be through layering in Photoshop or turning off and on elements in a composition. So that's how I got to making those initial studies in 2015 while in grad school at UCLA. You know, that last bit about trying to make sure the viewer knew that you weren't constructing something in Photoshop. I mean, that goes back to mid-19th century photography when an artist like like Carlton Watkins, who's reflecting uh, a mountain in a lake, makes sure he includes a stick floating on the lake so that the viewer would know it, that he was there and that he didn't just make that reflection in the darkroom. So, so we talked a moment ago about how part of your project is investigating how a photograph is made. Is it important to you that there's a mirror inside your camera and that you're making, or, or inside many cameras, and that by using a mirror in the object which you title in the artwork, that you're referencing the making of the object itself in a way that references your tool? Yes, it is, it is important, but it, its meaning changed. I mean, because I don't set out to like sit around and like, read theory on mirrors and come up with something and think about how can I make a picture to deconstruct pictures or make people think about how images are made. I just needed to make images for the reasons I described of needing to incorporate myself into its surface in the same way that I needed to be in the original portraits alongside these friends. And the mirror was just the way to do it. And thinking about its surface, came after the fact of just needing to not clean it so that people would notice it. And then I could start from there. I began to build the more conceptual framework around it. Right. So then later on, I get to thinking, you know, and you have these wonderful critiques and conversations and meetings with faculty at grad school. And then this is where all of that kind of conversation comes in. You know, I start reading and thinking about it, but I work, I don't work from, conceptualizing something and then executing it it's more like i'm just i'm making things and i'm looking but the one thing i do one rule i have for myself is like i have to really deal with the material at hand and i respond by kind of thinking about what's the what is the question that's left behind by the previous project or something that i've not yet answered and then i use those tools when i make and then i continue to make work and then hopefully if the work is successful, that's where through looking at it, spending time with it, taking notes, writing, that's where thinking about, okay, all of the layers of mirroring of the technical apparatus of sort of like its history 
kind of got developed. And then I continue to make work that plays off of that. So that's the difference between the, the studies from like 2015, which are those arrangements of this unresolved print material from the previous years on the mirror surface to the darkroom project, which is really constructing images that then play off of the thinking of the mirror within the aperture at the center of the image. Oh, that works. I mean, it's not only exciting, but it's often funny. There's a real sense of humor that runs throughout, not just the mirror studies, but throughout throughout the work. Two other things I want to ask about mirror studies. One is about a specific artwork. The mirror studies, as people can see if they haven't seen the work on manpodcast.com, have a really intense relationship to the picture plane, like a really excitingly intense relationship to the picture plane. The picture I want to talk about is mirror study, parentheses, underscore, Q5A3505, which involves a mirror, you, your tripod, uh, some printed material taped to the mirror, maybe. It's all kind of hard to deconstruct and figure out, which is why it's a lot of fun. But also there is this layering, illusionistic layering upon what is obviously a very flat surface. The, the, the phrase I typed in my notes for what you're doing here is compressing space. What about compressing space interested you? And was it about cubism or is it about cubism? I was not, I can confidently say I was not thinking about cubism, but I cannot say that I had not absorbed what cubism had left with us um, and continues to do so. Compressing space. I mean, yeah, Q583505 is an interesting one. That one, people love that work. And to be honest, and I hope this does not break myself, it was an outtake that I had never intended to ever show. But it really caught people's attention. And I think maybe because it very succinctly raises those questions that you brought up, but the thing that about sort of this relationship to the picture plane within the larger project was that the camera always needed to be perpendicular to the surface of the mirror because there were a series of pictures that I had taken where the mirror is at a slight angle. And I was interested in those ones. I was interested in the idea of, of sort of like the fetish look of the voyeur that can't be broken by seeing oneself looking and thinking about the, the relationship between these sort of like vectors created by like sight lines. And there's an image called a ground file 0083 that kind of summarizes that. But with these images like mirror study Q5A3505, the camera's always at the center of the image and it is pointed directly at the mirror. And then for the most part, there is a cutout or a series of layered cutouts in a roughly a triangular shape, which was made to obscure the, to partially obscure the figure of the tripod that's holding up the camera and the camera that is making the image. And then within those, I'm really sort of like playing with that shape because the camera, because I've been making these images of cameras and tripods beforehand, it had already, you know, and even preceding me, obviously there's, you know, the idea of the camera and the tripod as a stand-in for the photographer, right? So 
in thinking about the picture plane, I was not thinking about cubism, but I was thinking about how I was always part of the composition while making them. If I'm photographing a mirror at an angle, I'm not a part of the image when I'm making it because it's reflecting some other space that's out of the scene. But in these, I'm always within them. And then there's this sort of like playfulness of like, do I stay in the image or do I put the camera on a timer and walk away? And so then become very, and then the resulting image is of course very flattened. Occasionally you'll catch these sort of like depths of field when you see them close up, but there are clues to this, what at first looks like just a very flat space. And that's in the fact that you're, you, you begin to realize that everything in the image is telling you exactly how it's made. You see the tripod legs, you, you know that the, you know, that's the tripod that's holding up the camera that's taking the, the picture, you know, that you start to see the separation between the surface of the mirror and the wall and the ground of the studio. Even the titles, these titles with these numbers after them, those are the file names that the camera gives to the individual exposure. Again, which is now a convenient kind of way of organizing the work, but began as a way of sort of, again, presenting every aspect of the image, going back to this question of me being interested in how pictures are made, emphasizing that it's a single capture, that it is not a composite. Switching gears a bit, the studio as a site um, has long been important in all kinds of media. Painting, of course, you mentioned Las Meninas earlier, and of course, the, the, the painter's presence there is important. But the studio is important in video through, say, Bruce Nauman, uh, and, you know, that, that, that keeps going forward. I know that when you live in lived in New York, you made work at home and at, at sites around the city. You mentioned one on uh, 18th Street earlier. But without question, once you moved to L.A., the studio as a site has become fundamental to, to the work. It's readily identifiable in many of your pictures as a stage, as a set, as a place, as a site. Why did you choose to make the studio such a consciously evident place within the work? For the recent work, it was, again, it goes back to that just sort of making everything present. Kind of, so, you know, the way in which those, like a lot of those mirror studies, you can see the floor, you can see like that concrete floor, and you can also see where the, and then you can also see at the top of the picture where the wall ends, and it just becomes like this, like, it's just like the unlit, like, guts of the warehouse. Yeah, it's it, it's gray with some supports for the wall. It's in picture after picture. Yeah, and then the earlier ones that are made at the UCLA grad studio, it really just kind of like fades into like darkness and these weird like lights. So when I was first making them, I was cropping in and I was cropping in so that you didn't, you not only would, would you not see the edge of the mirror, but you, I was cropping in so that you wouldn't see where the wall ended and you wouldn't see the floor, right? So then the background is just a complete kind of like white, off-white space that becomes, that literally becomes nothing. So, you know, thinking back to like the, you know, the sort of like proving yourself as sort of like a street or a documentary photographer of printing full frame and revealing the frame, I began pulling back to that was also thinking about like not wanting even the wall behind my camera to be a non-space because it was painted white 
And so then after that, the studio can't help but take on the character, right? Because it's, then you're seeing it all, right? And it's, it's like, it, it just becomes its own thing. But before that, the studio, when I was at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and when I was at the Center for Photography at Woodstock the summer before that, I think that was July of 2010 was when really the idea of like the studio as a space developed, you know, the, the room that I was using, like that I'd already become very conscious of how the space and how the sort of like inhabiting of a space, how wonderful it was to not work in photography in a way in which you sort of construct a studio for the day and then deconstruct it. So I get to the studio museum in 2010 after the Center for Photography at Woodstock, where I had been kind of like filling up this attic space with with photograph, I was, photographs I was making and printing out and re-photographing every day. And so then the Studio Museum gets to be not only the space that's continually habited, it becomes sort of like a place for a kind of like performative participation by these friends and also myself, a place for like observation and like layering and recombining and then that's what I brought to then thinking about the studio at UCLA, which then combined being able to work through the material generated at the end of and after the studio museum with a surface that not only would incorporate me, but then in that same way as the studio at Harlem was always a slowly changing backdrop of those images that then my studio there at UCLA through the mirror would become again, this constantly repeating backdrop that slowly changed and kind of became a character in its, in itself. There are a couple of things I wanted to ask about how you choose to compose your rectangles, if you will. And the work I w would like to raise is called study with five figures, parentheses, 3002 close parentheses, you know, like many of your works, this this one references collage. How do you think through where things should go within a rectangle and why? Well, I think it's important to say that everything unfolds over time within these. So what the appended number in the parenthesis also reveals is sequence in which works are made. Right. So this study with five figures, parenthesis three zero zero two, is the thirtieth roll of film and second frame that roll. And so I think it's important to also think about what was three zero zero one, what was twenty nine ten, what was twenty nine oh nine, etc. Because none of them are none of this starts with like a blank mirror surface and then I just sort of like make an image that I know that is just like a good picture that never happens. When I described its surface as being a place that all of this material could kind of be organized on is what I meant by that is that like Im images or fragments would enter onto that surface and become part of a composition and I'm photographing and then they're moving and then I'm making another photograph and this might take place, you know, I might shoot a roll of film in a day and a half or maybe two weeks. And so there's time passing. There are things that then come off of its surface that migrate to other parts of the studio. So study for five figures, parenthesis 3002, 
is just one frame in if someone somehow snuck into my studio and got access to all of these negatives, you could look through them and make a stop motion animation of everything unfolding. And these are just sort of like cells in that animation. So what you see in this, there is this fragment of my friend Marshall in the lower left corner. And then there's this jet, these images of Jasmine that my friends Darren and Arthur sent. And then we have the flowers. Yes. And then we have these, these uh, two hands. I forget if they're taking on or removing the shirt that my friend Pilar sent. And then below, and then you can see underneath that, that there's something that's obscured this sort of like with this kind of blue underneath that. And so you can start already start to, yeah. And these are all eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. Some things are blown up and tiled, but this is just one moment in which all these things have been layered. And there are things that, you know, there may be several frames beforehand. There may have been other elements that were part of this. And then after this, there, some of these things may be taken off and something else added. So, it's a good question about composition because I think the successful ones have a, a logic and like a formal quality of the comp to the composition that, yeah, like something that sort of, even if I liked to think that even if there was no content in these, in these arrangements, it, I mean, in the fragments, if they were just sort of like solid fields of, of kind of like similar colors, that they would still be successful images, but I wanted the legibility of what's within them to remain in the realm of the personal or the social or through gossip. Uh, let's talk about your hands. Your hands are in a lot of the work. The hands are of other people are in some of your work, but not nearly as much as your own hands. How did including your hands in the work come to be something you wanted or were at least okay with? And are there art historical surfaces for how you position, hold, or show your hands? My hands are always just doing the thing that needs to be done in order to make the picture. But like you yourself said, but like you said a moment ago, you could have just, you know, used a timer often. But you're, but you're choosing the hand to be there. Yeah, so the hand is either, when, when the hand is visible, it's either like, steadying the camera, actually taking the picture, you know, there, none of them are just setups, which is also, you know, there would often be this confusion of, well, where's the person taking the picture? Cause they would, someone would see me and then think there's someone else who's taking a picture of me holding a camera rather than it being a reflection and sort of like a closed circuit. So in the pictures where I'm making a picture, my hand is just doing what needs to be done to take the picture, which is kind of a nice way of like, not thinking too much about it. And then I always find that the most sort of like pleasing images become result from actually having to do the thing than thinking about how would I stage myself to look like I'm doing a thing. But there's hands that come into the work otherwise, which are about like holding and just sort of like, I guess what I should, what I should say, there aren't any, we don't have any of these images in your reference and because they haven't been in the exhibitions either is that, so I used to make zines. I made a lot of zines and kind of like self-published book projects. And that's what led me to using the, the black and white laser print 
uh, Xerox machine and photocopiers to work with kind of this material that was that I was still sorting, right? And so I was in the same way that when I mentioned I would photograph my my working surfaces in the color darkroom, I would often photograph myself like holding different spreads in these bundles of books, these bundles of, of not not books, but bundles of just kind of like paper clipped or or binder clipped material, right? So my hand would appear in them. And the and this is like around the late aughts. Is and so this is at the same time that Tumblr and things, I believe it was like started really hyper circulating, right? And so this thing happened where my images were kind of like traveling around in this way where they would lose attribution. And I would, I, I initially joined Tumblr because I was trying to kind of like friends were stumbling across them. And I was like, Oh, the only way I can actually like offer a response is if I'm on the platform. Right. And there's this interesting thing that happened because not all the sub, because I'm making portraits with these, with these friends and yes, of myself and those people, but the subjects are not always black, right? There's a thing that happens where, where either fragments of black subjects kind of collapse into like the assumption that they are self-portraits or this, or the converse is what was happening when these images were kind of traveling the internet is they were, people didn't realize that. I thought it was interesting that people assumed that there was a white or a non-black artist making them some of these portraits of other subjects. So I have these images of me holding and re-photographing this material, and I started putting those online, just like thinking about, oh, what is what makes why? How do we assume sort of like authorship if sort of like a direct kind of like, oh, I'm a black author or artist, and so the subjects of the work are black, and that is is serves to reinforce the identity of myself as the artist author, you know, I was kind of like, well, let me just sort of like reclaim these pictures by by putting images online of me holding the working material. So that's where hands came in way before this work in my current studio. And so, but that was in the back of my mind, like my hand disappears from the work in the studio museum project. And for quite a bit of the work that came in between and came back in, when I was whole, when I was again thinking about using material and making my hand present in terms of like composing it or holding it up. So when you see my hand in these mirror compositions, I'm photograph, I'm putting the camera on a timer and photographing myself as I'm sort of like holding up the arrangements or like adjusting them. Textiles, your work from about 2015 on often features hanging cloths which, of course, have a rich photographic portrait studio descended history. And only you mostly don't use them that way. They You typically or often use black or brown velvet. To me, they read as a reference to something really tactile that we can't touch, both because it's an artwork and because it's a photograph of the actual thing. And they also read as a metaphor for, for the skin we see in your pictures, whether it's a forearm or more of somebody. What work do you want textiles to do in your pictures? So textile, and when I think of textiles, I'm thinking about fabric that has a specific cultural history. Like, because 
yeah, when I think of textiles, I think, okay, a pattern comes, it, it's, you know, we trace hundreds of years of, of migrations and trade and colonialism and all this stuff, right? You know, and so I have, you know, I have lots of fun textiles at home and I brought them into my studio initially to try to photograph. I was like, oh, but then there's so, that becomes the overwhelming content of the work. So yeah, no textiles, but, um, fab, but fabric. Okay. So yes, I was photograph. I've been photographing fabric again since the very beginning. The portraits on the beds were accompanied by photographs of the empty bed after the subject was left. So there, there's not only the portraits, but there are these ones that I used to call landscapes and they are just sort of these, Again, that continual line, the horizon of the bed with the occasional book or bookshelf or maybe pillow creeping in. And so there was there was that. And I photographed. And the funny thing is, is I really when I was when I started doing that, I had like white bed sheets. And I was like, oh, I think black bed sheets would look way more cool for these photographs. So I, I had kept black bed sheets for years in New York. And I was again making photographs of these sort of like horizons of the beds. Ben 2009 black bed sheets. Yeah. Yeah. We've got that's the most black bed sheets. They probably started around 2007 maybe. And so when I went to the studio museum, I just rather than, you know, when I needed to get new bed sheets, rather than throwing them out, I just brought them to the studio and I began draping them over things and photographing. So there's some of the very first pictures I took there and they make these appearances. And so it's something that I had been there. You can look at some of those and see the exact same compositions of the kind of it's pinned on the top left and right. It sort of drapes in the middle and there's elements either being obscured by it or pinned to it. None of that work made it into the survey, the current survey. Suddenly it was like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for so long. What, changed or what the development was again all the fun things that happen in grad school that you can't plan so there was another student there he was working in, on a film and this sort of like sci-fi surrealist crazy film and had all this like insane amounts of like leftover gold fabric and i was like i'm gonna use this i'm gonna try just like draping it in my studio because i was so i was thinking at the time with bringing in fabric was when I stopped using all of this like archival or personal archival material in those, those printouts, those laser printouts for those more graded compositions, I wanted to start photographing people again. I wanted to start photographing my friends here in LA and I wanted to, I wanted to base them off of like, just the, just again, the very straightforward like history of like gay pictures in Los Angeles, the like, Bruce of LA, the, you know, the, the, you know, but then thinking about how those people who ascended into like fine art knew how to use all of the tropes of the photo studio of like art and painting and what was contemporary then, like surrealism in photography, right? The use of this fabric of shadow of kind of like these optics and things like that, basically how George Platt lines was so much more successful because he could make his sexy men like be in conversation with like 
like Dali or like Cocteau, you know? So I was like, uh, so I was using that gold fabric as a way, as a background for staging these kind of like beefcake photos that I was playing around with with friends and being like, okay, now we get to do the art thing to make them look like art. And that is material that then got turned into some of the mirror studies. But so that's where fabric came in. I was, I did a, that whole first series of my thesis and right afterwards, which was shown at here in LA and then at in 2017 at Yancey Richardson in New York was that those gold and blue and other fabrics that I could use to drape and create, and you know, and a lot of those, a lot of them are also just images of these scenes of just that fabric. The black velvet came in, the black and brown velvets came in a year or two afterwards, the end of 2016. And I was thinking about, okay, all of these tropes, photography is just inherited from painting. If photography didn't invent anything with like how deliciously simple and like rewarding a picture of drapery is, right? It's like the thing that a painter could do to show off some, you know, quick skills. You know, it's the thing, you know, the photographer studio includes this, you know, the black velvet for creating kind of like a seamless black backdrop. So I just, so that was a continuation of, kind of like 1930s, 40s study of the gold fabric. Your mention of painting reminds me that when you were doing your MFA at UCLA, one of your professors probably uh, was Kathy Opie, who in those very years was making an enormous number of portraits that included Holbein-esque backdrops. Finally, I want to ask about two pictures that kind of jump off from these fabric pictures. Um... One, uh, one is titled Aperture, parentheses, underscore, 2140020, close parentheses. And it's a black, uh, it's, it's black fabric with a hole right in the middle of your rectangle, a hole in the fabric right in the middle of your rectangle. And the other one is Orifice, parentheses, OX5A6982. It's also, close parentheses, it's also from 2018, and it's, also fabric, and it also has a hole in the middle of the fabric. Only in the hole of orifice is a camera lens. The two works together kind of point to the intimacy of the camera and its lens as having a parallel or equivalent intimacy of an orifice. What about the connection between an aperture and an orifice did you like there? Were you interested in exploring and underscoring there? So I'd made these images where I cut like a glory hole in the black fabric and then was photographing the reflected, again, photographing at an angle, the reflection of the mirror through it. And like, think, and like, it was really wonderful because depending on how, where I moved and where my camera was in relation to like a vector pointing through that hole to the mirror, its shape would change. And so I was making all of these pictures like that and at the same time i was making a few i was making these images that were sort of self-portraits with my back turned to the camera kind of like holding holding the camera so like they're they're quite painful to do they're kind of like grotesque even though people i think think they're quite lovely but in my mind the memory of them is quite uncomfortable but I was working on I just had like some tests of those up and my friend this uh 
my good friend, this painter, Sam McInnes, was in town and he came by my studio and we were looking at these things and he's like, and he just said this offhand, like every camera in your pictures is like an orifice, like one of those Bougaro water girls. And I was like, what? You know, you know he's not wrong. <laughs> I know. And then I looked up the Bougaro water, you know, I was like, wait a minute, I think I know what you're talking about. And then I looked them up and I was like, oh God, yes, exactly. But the idea that like that in not only in that painting of the water girl, but in these images of the camera, it's like that hole is the only way out of the picture. And then, you know, I started thinking about this idea that like in every one of these pictures where you, where you see the, where the camera's at its center, if you look at them very, if you look at them up close, you can always see the aperture that is open at that very moment, you know? And it's kind of like up until this point, the camera is just always this, you know, it's like Schrodinger's cat or something like it's always just sort of in potential. But at that moment when you're taking the picture, it collapses because it opens and a thing about making these photographs in front of the mirror is that they're already in an enclosed loop. The observer is already incorporated into the picture. And so then the viewer of the final work is completely outside of it. But perhaps that orifice that that aperture, that like most basic joke kind of can be the way where you can go in and out of them. Uh, well, Paul Padri Sapoya, thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Testing the very definition of portraiture, Sheldon Museum of Art explores nuances in the genre from the late 19th century to today. Person of Interest, on view from January 24th through July 5th, 2020, asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance of identity. In doing so, the exhibition prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. Person of Interest features works by artists ranging from John Singer Sargent, Robert Henri, and Marisol, to Radcliffe Bailey, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, and Renee Stout. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Support for the MAN podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. Now on view is Susan Phillips, Seven Tears. Turner Prize-winning artist Susan Phillips is best known for her works that explore the potential of sound, often including her own untrained voice, to define space and its interaction with architecture. The exhibition includes a newly commissioned installation, Too Much I Once Lamented, created for the water court at the Pulitzer's Tato Ando Design Building. Other works, Poetic Meditations on Loss, Hope, and Longing, animate the museum's galleries and surrounding architecture, creating a constellation of singular, immersive environments. Susan Phillips' Seven Tears is on view through February 2, 2020. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18, 2019 through February 9, 2020.
Welcome back. Next up, Shapu Wong, who joins me to discuss Chiara Obata, An American Modern, a retrospective of Obata's career that's now at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. Obata, who was born in Okayama, Japan, melded modernism and American landscapes with Japanese traditions to make a body of work that both engaged the United States and that sometimes critiqued its racism. Obata debuted at the Art Design and Architecture Museum at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is on view at SAM through May 25th. The exhibition catalog was published by University of California Press. Amazon offers it for $50. Shapu Wong, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to start with how Obata made work over over the course of his career, because I think that that is a, a, a key way in which he demonstrates difference and influence from the far too dominant story of New York, Paris, Axis modernism. What did Obata make work from and on from the early 1900s until until the end of his career, and why was that so important to him? I think one of the distinct features of his work is making art to him is a way of life. And we can see that from the quantity of his artistic production, as well as the quality, obviously. He seems to be using art as a way to know every detail of life and paying attention, trying to capture different things and interpret what he sees. And I think that's a different approach than thinking about producing art for exhibitions or for commercial purposes. And to him, art making is about discipline. It's about getting really knowledgeable of the material and understand how the material reacts and how it could create different forms, lines, colors, effects, really inside out. You know, I think his his, his greatest and best-known works are, are landscapes he makes starting in the 1930s, and we'll get to them in a minute. But he, as, as, as the exhibition demonstrates, is unusually varied almost in his, in, in his choice of subjects, from, from fish to flowers, from portraits to paintings of monkeys or a camel. In the 1900s, early 20s in particular, he, he seems wide-ranging. Why, why, why was he, what was he after? So during that period, one of the reasons that you see a variety of work is that he was trying to make a living through illustration. So this is separate from his art making to some extent, and he had to support a young family. And I think his clientele was diverse. So he worked for very different purposes and projects. But I think that was that was also a period where he was able to explore being in this new environment, having immigrated in 1903, to see what this place could offer him. And you get the sense of his experimenting with different approaches, styles, subject matter, obviously, and also the joy of exploration from this period. In 1930, and then really in 1932, his, his life changes. He 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 get he gets a new job, and, and and the work advances, changes quickly. What happens in 30, and what happens in 32? So in 1927, he went on the Yosemite trip with his friends, including Worth Ryder from 
UC Berkeley. And on that trip, he produced some 150 paintings. And because of that trip, Worthwhile invited him to become an art professor at UC Berkeley. And I think it's interesting because once, if you're an artist working on your own and you become a teacher, that also helps you think about your own artistic production and strategy as well. And so that's, that was a period that was productive for him, I think. And now in 1928, he had his first solo exhibition at the age of 43, although we don't necessarily sure if his age was correct, which is the same for a lot of immigrants. And he had the first solo exhibition in San Francisco, but at the same time, his father passed away in Japan. So he returned to Japan, but he didn't just go to the funeral. He brought his works, he produced works, and he worked with a printing studio to produce that famous World Landscape series print. This happened in Japan. And as soon as, as, soon as he returned to California, he, his participation in exhibitions, group exhibitions, really increased, I think. He has a, a, an exhibition at, at Berkeley, and then it's in 32 that he's, he's hired onto the faculty. You mentioned Obata's 1927 trip to Yosemite, where, where he made about 150 paintings. How was that a remarkable and shameful moment in American history? Indeed, so much of America's West Coast, particularly, looking toward Asia history in the 19th and early 20th century is pretty horrific. And what might Obata's work in Yosemite say about his address of, of American policy? So for the Yosemite series, I think he was really responding to the natural beauty and grandeur. But of course, in the background was the exclusion era and all the exclusionary laws that really render his existence alien and quote-unquote undesirable. But I think this series of work really showed that the artist was putting himself in this environment fully and not necessarily thinking about the implicit or explicit rejection of him be calling this place home. Yeah, I mean, I think in the catalog, in, in your catalog essay, you also argue that by going to Yosemite and by making work in Yosemite, by making a lot of work in Yosemite, that Obata is also saying there is a place for Japanese Americans within America and here in paintings of the most nationalistic American landscape, the landscape most closely associated historically with with union and, and reunion after the Civil War, that Japanese Americans belong and have something to add to the American landscape tradition. Yes. So on that point, it, it, it is quite interesting that just in terms of the visual language, right, the, the styles and techniques, he was insistent on creating something his own, not following any of the landscape painters of the West at the time. But at the same time, they are not necessarily paintings from the late 19th century Japanese art or even the prints of that era. And the aesthetic, the visual language are different. And so in essence, he, he was making it his own and making it his home. 
There, there, there's an extraordinary painting from 1930 of Half Dome that, that's in the show. Could you maybe, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Could you maybe talk through how he made Half Dome and Yosemite his own? Because I think that's absolutely right. He actually produced a series of Half Dome and obviously different views of the iconic landmarks at Yosemite. We couldn't show all of them. And the reason I wanted to show those works is that he's treating the subject matter not necessarily as a, what we would call national landmark, but as an aesthetic object to render, to observe, to interpret. And he sometimes would use really loose brush stroke to create the texture on the face of the cliff at other times using really smooth wash to have a sort of sloping effect on the hills. And he's really enjoying that process of trying different things, capturing that experience. He talked about something that we don't tend to talk about in painting is that he talked about the sound that he heard during those trips. The the snow melting from the mountaintop, almost like singing. And if you go into the exhibition being surrounded by those images, you could imagine the sort of sensory experience of being there, painting in front of this grand landscape. And I think that that's quite special. Also, the other interesting aspect is that he would use water from the site of his painting, in essence, incorporating natural elements from the site into his painting. And so the painting takes up that natural element that, that is just with us in the exhibition. Yeah, that, that, that half dome is really great. I think that there's, across Obata's Yosemite pictures, he is strikingly inventive. I mean, from, from 1861 forward, the the ways artists showed Yosemite, both photographers and painters, who of course were in intense dialogue in those years, tended to be really guided by what Carlton Watkins had made in, in 61 and in 65 and 66. And when Obata and Ansel Adams come along in the early to mid 20th century, you know, in the 20s and 30s, there's a real change. Um, there's a real move away from the, the way Watkins and, and, and later Bierstadt had, had, had shown the place. Obata's masterpiece, arguably, is a 1930 painting, 1930-ish painting, called Lake Basin in the High Sierra. It's one of my favorite paintings of the American 20th century. One of the reasons it's so exceptional is it takes a mountain subject and really presents it horizontally rather than vertically. It's a real departure. It's it's in the collection of the Fine Arts Museums in San Francisco. Where does that painting come from, and what about it strikes you? He produced many versions of that in different scales. We still haven't been able to locate the document, but he supposedly produced one that was sent to the Japanese emperor, a group of businessmen based in California, or the, the U.S. Uh, gifted that to the emperor. But that means he's really passionate about that subject. And I think it was the challenge of the scenery. So if you look at some of the versions, either in print or painting, he was grappling with the idea of landscape 
both in what we would call the Japanese tradition or the American tradition, right, European tradition, that he's trying to create a sense of space at the same time collapsing the foreground, middle ground, background, right? He's, he's, he's trying to break away from that formula of, oh, this is a space I create and you wander into it. And so if you look at the water, the water is really not quite placed in the middle to suggest a, a vast body of water because it's, it's pushed up against the picture plane with the foreground, the rocks in the foreground and the, 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 the mountain in the background too. And I think it was first the challenge and also the experience of going there because sometimes we forget that these scenes are in faraway places that they have to hike for days. And that's a really physical challenge for them to even get there in the first place. And so that exhilaration to, to be there, to discover a new spot and trying to capture that after your body is basically telling you this is really difficult, I think could be visible in some of these paintings. You know, the landscapes really, really pop and jump out, I think, for, for, for reasons you're suggesting. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me about Obata is that he brings new ways of making to an American tradition that at that point was almost exactly 100 years old and that was very ready for and was eagerly absorbing new influences, whether it be what Obata is doing in the West or what Hartley is doing mostly in the East and bringing in Cezanne's landscapes. And I think two other really good examples of Obata adding to the tradition are a painting from 1922 in the show called Setting Sun of Sacramento Valley, which is uh, an extraordinary thing, and, and Untitled Alma from about 1930, about the same year as Lake Basin. What is Obata doing in each of these, and, how, and, and what is he really adding to the American address of landscape? I think these two are great examples of an artist working in a somewhat different mode. I mean, along with Lake Basin, these are huge paintings that really in, envelops you. And so if you think about the landscapes of Moran and Bierstadt, it's almost as if he was trying to do that, but using silk as a canvas and his training and the tradition that he's incorporating to create a different language for landscape. And so in all three, I think you see the composition is quite different. There are areas that take up most of the composition instead of a the, the distant mountain range kind of landscape that you see in other artists' work. At the same time, there's a quality of living organism in all of these, especially, I think, Elma, which very few people get to see, but I saw that when I was doing research at the Dion Museum, it has a really tactile feel to it. You don't necessarily get that when you stand in front of a Moran landscape because uh, it's, it's just overwhelming. Yet Elma, a landscape like Elma, really draws you in. You get visceral reaction to the scene. People do talk about when we show the sunset scroll at the Crocker Art Museum, that was the only venue we could show it 
people really spend a lot of time standing in front of it because it's it's, it's a jarring painting. Uh, the sky and the horizon line, you have to make what I call cognitive reconciliation of what you are expecting. And that's quite a demanding process, I think. Yeah, it's in the collection of the, the St. Louis Art Museum. It's um, ink and color on silk. I imagine there are stern light restrictions. <laughs> you know, one of the things that interests me about the the Alma painting from about 1930 is it suggests quite quite strongly that, that Obata is looking at photography. It's a it's an image that seems quite informed by by pictorialist photography. And there's another painting in the show, it's the painting you start the, the, the catalog with that kind of gets at a full range of, of, of influences. Obata, of course, is famed not just for his art, but for his response to the American government's dispossession and internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. He doesn't just show internment in his work, but he established art schools at both the Tan Fran Detention Center just south of San Francisco, later the site of a horse racing track and shopping mall, because that's how we do history, and at the internment camp at Topaz, Utah, which is in kind of uh, west-central, middle-of-nowhere Utah. The painting I'm, I'm talking about is Obata's 1942 Moonlight over Topaz. It's a watercolor on silk that may well have been informed by Ansel Adams's famous 1941 Moonrise over Hernandez, New Mexico. The, the Adams dates to November 41. Obata was interned at the end of April 1942, so he may have, he may have known the Adams. Uh, we'll have both on manpodcast.com, at least try and have the Adams. <laughs> that painting, how does it show Topaz, and what about it stands out to you? This is the one in the Roosevelt Library collections. I talked about this in the exhibition catalog as well, is that if you look at his landscape from this period while he was incarcerated, there was this consistent attempt to almost put yourself, the artist or and the viewer, away from the scene and looking back, as opposed to being on the ground, observing what's happening around you, as in his series of monochromatic uh, drawings, sketches. And he doesn't talk about what he was trying to do. You can see landscape almost as a way to understand, organize, and make sense. And if we want to be more critical, almost aestheticize the, the chaos and the trauma on the ground. And I think that's a, a, a function or a, an approach to landscape that's different from some of the landscapes that we, we see in for, for Ameri the American West, especially. The way he paints this painting, the way he kind of, kind of north-south vertical brush strokes that create uncertainty in, in the painting, and the way that movement of, of paint on the surface stands against and opposes the, the black buildings of, of Topaz is really, really striking. And he really minimizes the menace of the condition, I mean, the harsh conditions, right? It's, it's not meant to demonstrate how difficult it is for the people who are incarcerated there. But 
it's more focused on the natural elements, the natural beauty of it. But at the same time, because we understand what it what it is, again, you have to struggle to grapple with the meaning of the scene or the significance of the scene, even in the face of such beauty. There are two paintings Obata makes that bookend the internment period. One is titled Landslide. It's from 1941. And the other is Devastation from 1945. What do those two pictures show us or represent? And when Obata paints Devastation in 45, is he consciously, intentionally riffing on his own landslide from 41? Are they, are they bookends, if you will? I don't know if he was conscious of that, but as a, that was, I, we could say that that's my curatorial intervention. And that's something I try to do in the exhibition is to pick works that echo each other. Sort of structurally, you see certain works earlier and then he went back to a similar subject matter or different visual language for the same subject matter, and you get a sense of the the artist's journey, so to speak. I I think these two are unique in that they are probably the more, I would call, violent images, the rendition of it, the the way nature, the way the land is reacting or being attacked, as in one painting and the other, and he's trying to capture that agitation, that trauma, especially in devastation. I think what's interesting about devastation is that the the jarring juxtaposition of the aftermath of an atomic bomb and the colorful colorful marks that's on the ground, right, radiating out. He didn't make it monochromatic. He didn't make it like a torched earth, charred, black earth, but colorful. And that's always very puzzling to me why he chose that. And it creates different interpretations, I think. People tend to respond to that. Yeah, it's a fantastic painting. We'll have them both on um, on, on manpodcast.com. Chronologically, the last painting in the show is from 1965. It's called Glorious Struggle. And it's uh, kind of a great summary painting, if you will. How does it kind of sum up Obata's practice, his mix of of American place and thing and Japanese-informed ways of making paintings? It is a fascinating painting because he is returning to this vertical format that we would associate with Japanese or Chinese landscape. And it's also on silk. At the same time, he's painting these trees that are deeply associated with the American West, right? California, uh, sequoia trees, and it's struggling in a storm. And I, so he, he talked about that no matter what happened, if you look to the, to, to the trees in nature, how they can withstand any challenge, snow, wind, rain, they tell you, don't worry, things are going to pass. And if you just stay calm, stay steady, you will survive. And I think those trees are very meaningful for him, especially living through such an eventful era of his life in the U.S. And so I wanted to use that painting to really 
summarize his approach not just to painting but also to life. I mean, one of the things that's that's remarkable about that painting, as you noted, it's a it's a painting of a giant sequoia, and it's painted in in 1965. That's the hundredth anniversary of the end of the Civil War. During the Civil War, California's sequoias are are prominent national symbols of of unionism and the endurance of the ideas of embedded in the American Republican experiment. And here in '65, in another moment of enormous upheaval in America, when America is having to finally readdress the unfinished business of, of the Civil War, a process that continues to this day, of course, here's Obata, who, who, who brings a, a third history into, into the American landscape, addressing California's great contribution to, to the symbolism of, of unionism. It's, very, it's a very cool painting. <laughs> Yes, and also 1965 is the Immigration Act of 1965, right? the hard seller immigration bill that finally addressed the issue of excluding immigrants, especially Asian immigrants. And so that was a significant year for him, although he already got the citizenship earlier, that was important too. Yeah, one, one, one suspects he was well aware of the role those giant sequoias played in American art and metaphorical, if you will, history. Shapu Wang, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Yes, it's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.